you want to make any changes? Yes, I do. Now that you mention it. And funny that you should mention it. Romaic ruminations, A, too long, B, Romaic rooms. You know how there used to be that show, Changing Rooms? And it's all about renovations. Yes. And, and renovations are huge and there's the block and there's all these other ones. I don't watch TV, so I don't know, but I'm told that people like to watch other people wrecking houses and then trying to fix them up for profit and for fame. Mm-hmm. Why can't we do that? Romaic rooms. rooms. Yeah, because okay. then it will boost the ratings, which right now are <laughs> infinitesimally small. <laughs> the tank, the tanking, I think. Um, I think not even the ants in the neighbouring anthill are watching. <laughs> no. So why don't we do that? Romaic rooms. <laughs> right. And we can decorate them in a Romaic fashion, which means we can have an argument about that, whether that means covering everything with plastic uh, whether it means uh, putting uh, plastic over the remote control, um, attaching a few doilies here and there. And can I ask, because this has been preying on my mind for a while, Pete, yes. and I did want to ask this, mm-hmm. why am I preceded in the background by illuminated balls? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Here we go. <laughs> the audience wasn't able to see I, for a second. So, yeah, it's, that's, that's right over there. I, I love <laughs> illuminated balls as much as the next man. Yeah. But why? Is this part of the renovation, remake rooms kind of look? Are we going to But look at the bright side. I'm actually in the void. I just saw a... Whereas I am unavoidable. <laughs> and, Completely. But are we purveying a kind of aesthetic? And I like what you did with that. Look at the bright side. Illumination and the bright side mm. while you're in the dark. Illumination. This is poetry. When ruminating. Illuminating when ruminating. There mm. you go. Now we now we can't get rid of the title. Well, then we change it to, instead of RU for ruminations, R-double-O for ruminating. <laughs> and there you have a workable title. Oh, right. Okay, then. Do you, do you like what the ball's illuminating? What's the ball's illuminating? Oh. It's right in the corner over there. That's a stripy flag, which uh, happens to be our own flag. And mm. um, I would launch into a hearty rendition of the national anthem, all 157 stanzas of it, but there's not enough time. You've memorised them all? I have. You know what? As implausible as that sounds, I actually believe it. You shouldn't, because it is implausible. Why would you want to? (laughs) We should talk about the National Anthem one day. It's interesting. There's a lot of things to discuss about it. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, put that down for the list. It's got inner meanings. So, starting our show, um, a few things. We should not allow two weeks to go by before doing a show. The number of topics that that you've you've been posting on Facebook have been stupendously high. So, I've had to sit there and sift through a whole lot of them. And oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, stop being so interesting. I will, I will attempt next time not to post anything, and then maybe we will shorten the duration between shows in that way. <laughs> I thought that we weren't having a show after the last one because it was received so badly. I actually was received quite well, I believe. Oh, I don't think so. I think it was a total load of balls, <laughs> illuminated or otherwise. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, uh, what are we doing here? Okay. So, first things first. Uh, let's um, let's go to our screen right here. Here we are. There we go. Let me just bring that over here. There we go. Okay. So, what are we looking at here? Dave? Okay. This is Tom Roberts' famous painting, 
referred to as the opening of the Houses of Parliament. Mm -hmm. And we know that the first Parliament was opened in Victoria because Canberra wasn't ready. Right. Which is bizarre. That would never happen these days. These (laughs) days it would be Queensland or somewhere very efficient. It would never be Victoria. And it was the exhibition buildings and uh, the uh, Earl of wherever was opening up Parliament on behalf of the King. and It was Mm -hmm. a massive empire do. But if you have a look... Right. Uh, once all these strange windows close, <laughs> at the bottom left-hand corner, and in particular this figure here, um, with the stovepipe hat next to the cardinal, him. Yeah, I'm pointing to the screen because I can, mes enfants. <laughs> and uh, you guys can't over there in television land, but uh, he who hath the finger hath the power. Absolutely. And there you see an Orthodox priest. Now this is this is right here. That's him. And this Orthodox priest is the first Orthodox priest of Melbourne, and his name was Athanasios Gandopoulos. Right. And he was the probably the only Greek, but definitely the first Greek Orthodox priest to attend the opening of the House of Parliament. Wow. And that's because he was the only Greek priest here. He came from the Patriarchate of Jerusalem, right. and uh, he was specifically chosen because in Melbourne at the time there were Greeks, mm-hmm. There were Syrians, which mm-hmm. covers Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, right. these areas with a lot of Orthodox Christians, mm-hmm. and Russians. And he had a smattering of all these tongues. So he was brought to Melbourne for that reason, to minister to the wow. small Orthodox community that was here. Mm-hmm. They built the church in 1896, the Evangelismos Church, the iconic church, the first mm-hmm. ever church mm-hmm. in Melbourne that was built purpose-built for Greeks mm-hmm. by an architectural firm which also built Ayosef Stathios in South uh, same firm. Melbourne. Same firm, but yep. obviously they built St. Saint, Eustathios Saint for the Anglican Church back then. Mm. Greeks bought that later. And Athanasius Kandopoulos is an interesting figure, Pete, because he had this ridiculous idea that he should treat Greeks, Syrians and Russians fairly and equally. No. So he would be doing things like holding services in Arabic. Really? And uh, the Greeks of the time, especially the well-to-do ones who were the movers and shakers of the community who happened mm. to have come from the Ionian Islands, right? and uh, especially from Ithaki, mm-hmm. they didn't like this. No. Okay. And even though the Syrians and the Bulgarians contributed to the cost of creating and building Evangelismos mm-hmm. Church, they were not considered to be equal by the head honchos in the community. Wow. So after a while, they were kicked out. And they were told, no, this church is only for Greeks, bugger off. And they went down the road, and that's why down the road, a couple of blocks away from Evangelismos on Victoria Street yeah. in, in East Melbourne, you find St. Nicholas Antiochian Church, which was the church that the Lebanese and the Syrians built for themselves after the Greeks told them to bugger off. There you go. And it's a great story about Greek philoxenia and tolerance. <laughs> well, lack thereof. Now, our Ithacan forefathers... And my dad's a Samyoti, and uh, those of you who know early Greek history know that Samyotis and Ithacans in Melbourne did not get along. Did not get along. I didn't know that. Yes, and the reason why is because, well, I'm biased, but the Ithacans were being obtuse. The Samians were right. Of course. But the real reason is that it was basically the Ithacans were the old community. They were established. The Samians had just come. This was in the early 1900s. Mm. were considered upstarts. There was a bit of jostling for position and power and privilege and the kind of things that happen hmm. uh, among Greeks. But the Ithacans did not like Andopoulos, the, the priest. He was. They believed that a priest should be controlled by the community, that the right. community leaders should tell a priest what to do and he should do it. Mm-hmm. And Gandopoulos believed that he should actually follow the Bible and the laws of the church. 
Hmm. So there was a bit of a conflict, and after a while they engineered his removal. So the guy left. Um, he had travelled to Western Australia. He travelled all around uh, the continent trying to find Greek communities, back then very remote, yeah. very isolated, to minister to them. Uh, a tragic figure in the end, but a revered figure, I think, now. And, uh, yeah, he records our, our early if you like, integration or uh, contact with the mainstream community in this painting by the great Impressionist painter Tom Roberts. Wow. There you go. Kantopoulos. Kantopoulos, Athanasios. Fascinating stuff. Where, where did he end up, uh, Dean? He went back to Greece. Yeah, whereabouts in Greece? Samos. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that the reason why you know so much about him? No, I actually know about him because Hugh Gilchrist of Blessed Memory, who was an Australian diplomat in Greece, yeah. was uh, interested enough to research and write a book about early Greek Australians, right. which every Greek Australian maison France should have. If you want to understand <laughs> your history, if you want to understand where you come from, and really if you want to understand how we cohere as a cohesive group, you've got to read this book, Australians and Greeks it's called. Wow. Yeah, Three tomes. Australians and Greeks. That's the one. Okay, good. And thanks for that. Speaking of uh, Greeks building buildings, yeah, you came across a pretty interesting one. Okay, so I was in Brisbane a couple of days ago, yeah, as one is, and uh, next to the church of uh, St George there in uh, Brisbane, yeah, which is close to the CBD, mm-hmm. you find this building here, and uh, it's got the inscription Zapion, right? And those of you who know know that the Zapion is a building which was created by funds left by Evangelos Zapas, mm-hmm. who was from Ipiros. Mm-hmm. He was a great benefactor of the Greek nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's a beautiful building with columns. It's in the middle of the botanical gardens right. next to Sindagma. Yes. And I have a story about Sindagma. My story is this. I used to hang around there, um, as people do, mm-hmm. and uh, this lady who I could under- tell was Greek-Australian Mm-hmm. came up to me and said, because she heard me speaking English to a friend, saying, right. oh, excuse me, can you tell me where Constitution Square is? Constitution Square. And I said, no, bugger off. <laughs> Constitution Square. Sindagma. <laughs> Next thing, Omonia Square is going to be called Harmony or Concord, uh, actually Concord Square. Concord. No, thank you. <laughs> I, have, I have a story about Omonia. I was only 15. Yeah. And uh, when you're 15, you think you're really smart. <laughs> only, when you're, <laughs> only Ducks, when you're 15 only when you're 15 ducks between 15 and 16 you think that everything you say yeah, is funny yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'm True. with my mates and I walk up to a policeman in Omonia and I say mm. excuse me sir can you tell me where uh, Omonia Square is and he says Omonia here I said come on man this is a circle how can it be a square <laughs> and everyone thought this was hilarious including myself <laughs> and the guy's arguing with me yeah yeah and he's saying, no, here, Omonia, circle, not square. So come on, man, it's, it's a circle, it's not a square. And he was getting really annoyed. Yeah, and yeah. then he goes, <laughs> To which I replied in Greek, Kalare Philippos Kaniset. You wouldn't have been happy and with that. No, no, he found, it, he found the funny side of it. Oh, really? Yeah, so he must have been... A Greek from the north, because Greeks from the south have no sense of humor. Oh come on, we're going back to that. Um, are we? <laughs> Peloponnesian Greeks? No, no, no. They're, they're not. They're, they don't understand humor. Humor for a Peloponnesian Greek is if somebody falls over into a puddle and drowns. That's funny. <laughs> so you must be part Peloponnesian because you laughed at that. <laughs> I would have as a no, as a half Ipiroti, I would be I would be singing Miroloya about this poor guy. Yeah, of course. But yeah, so that's my story. But and I've digressed really way off topic. Yeah. which is very uncharacteristic for me. 
uh, as is me talking about myself, I never do this. But anyway, I mean, do you want to bring it back? Yeah, yeah I'm, in, I'm in uh, Brisbane. I noticed this. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking, well, the Zapion is a building in Athens. Mm. I didn't know that we had one in Australia. And what happens is that George Freeligas in the 1920s, and the Freeligas family is a very famous family up in Brisbane. They, th- This family, members of them were honorary consuls for Greece. Mm-hmm. They were very active in the formation of the Brisbane community. They played right. a massive role in entrenching and ensuring that the Greeks played a very vibrant role in the development of Brisbane. Mm. So one of the Freeligas, George, built this in the ni- in 1926, I think it was, right. and called it Zapion in honour of the building in Athens wow. as a way of stamping a little bit of Greece on the architecture and the wow. streetscape of uh, Queensland. And it is heritage listed, and there are entries about it in the Queensland Register of Historical Sites mm-hmm. as Zapion, and they call it in Mediterranean style. In Mediterranean style. For me, this is more California bungalow meets uh, yeah. Spanish mission. Yeah, it looks a little... <laughs> but near enough is good enough, as we know about the Greek community. And I just found, think it's fascinating that you can travel to cities all around the world, yeah. or Brisbane, which mm. is practically all around the world, yeah. and come across architecture or references to Greece. That's fantastic. So and that's, that's and the story purely, behind that. This is purely by accident, just driving by? Purely by chance, walking by. Walking, walking by. by. And uh, I thought, now, now is far that far what I think it is? And it was what it I thought was. it was. Wow, well, there you go. Yeah. Dean's, uh, we should actually do um, uh, what's it, a travelogue uh, episode one day. Just you walking around, looking at things and finding some fascinating Have stuff. Have you been stalking me again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thoughts crossed my mind. Oh, <laughs> uh, something else that uh, you've posted, which I found uh, quite uh, fascinating. Okay, so this is the president of a Greek organization's wife unearthed after the 1975 purging when they lost the elections and they forgot that they'd buried it in the backyard. And this was unearthed during the recent renovations. Uh, okay. That was a particularly good year, 1975. <laughs> it was the year that they decided to use white tablecloths instead of blue and white checked ones. They had a guinea kiss in LFC. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was a vote of no confidence in the president and the president's wife. Hence that. Yeah. Well. But she died on her throne. No, I digress and I'm being silly, mes enfants. <laughs> what this is actually is the Greek, well, not the Greek, the Anatolian mother goddess, Kiveli. Okay. She was worshipped in Anatolia because, believe it or not, before the Greeks, there were other people living in Asia Minor. Oh, so we're talking. Pre-Greek... Um no, no, no. She was a pre-Greek goddess that right. was adopted by the Greeks who came to colonise and live in Asia Minor. Okay. Now, this lady here who's in a remarkable state of preservation, the mother goddess Kiveli, uh, comes from Kotiora, which is up north on the Black Sea in the region which we now refer to as Pondos. Mm-hmm. And she was discovered, believe it or not, in 2016. Very recently. Very recently. And there she is um, with some form of furred mammal at her feet. Wow. But she was very, very big in Asia Minor. Have they dated? I think this one here is uh, 300 BC. Wow. Gee. It's, it's definitely the Hellenistic times. How do they refer to it? Who? Pre-Roman? The, uh, our friends. Yeah. The custodians of the land from which we come. Yeah. See, I'd like to see that happening. Would you like to see that happening? Um, every time there's a function in Asia Minor... The dignitary saying, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. Wouldn't that be great? And pay my respects to the eldest <laughs> past, <laughs> present and emerging. And you know my story about these these kind of buzz phrases. And uh, I absolutely respect the native peoples of this land. Mm-hmm. And I have a few interesting 
opinions about the way. Now you say the being, word interesting. Does that mean I have to brace myself now? I'm not. I'm, uh, interesting is in uh, periphrasis because I'm not going to develop them on this show. Okay, fair enough. About how they were dispossessed and the bad things that happened to them and how that mm. sort of glossed over. Mm. But I will say this. I was at a function once and uh, in country Victoria and right. a lady had come from the city and she was using those phrases. Yep. I'd like to pay uh, my respects to the elders, past, present, emerging. Yep. So when she finished, I said to her, name one. Wow. She said, what? I said, name one. Name one what? I said, name one elder, past, present or emerging. Hmm. And she was looking at me yeah. the way people normally look at me when I speak yeah. to them. That way. Yeah. yeah. And I... Said to her, "Come on, but you can't, can you?" No, she couldn't. No, and I said to her, "Well, isn't that a bit disrespectful that you mentioned this, but you don't know who they are?" No. What exactly are you trying to do? Are you a trying to tell us that you're culturally sensitive when, in actual fact, you haven't made any effort to engage with these people? You don't know who they are, mm. or b are you just using stock phrases to cover up the history of the land and the dispossession of these people? That does you blanket respecting their elders by saying a phrase wow make us all equal you told her this i did and i only told her this because i think that and we'll get to this topic i think today when we're talking about the pontic genocide yeah even if tomorrow um the descendants of the perpetrators of this crime say okay we get it yeah we acknowledge it happened whatever will that be enough for people and how much is enough topic for later but yeah kiveli from pondos and Kiveli, of course, was also the name of a famous actress in Greece. Right. Uh, early, late 19th, early 20th century, and she happened to be the mistress of one George Papandreou, the father of Andreas Papandreou, also known as Oyeros Timokratias. Really? Yeah. Love having their mistresses, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, mis- mistresses are a thing um, in Europe, uh, at least until Macron came along. So... Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that now. <laughs> I, I shield my, my eyes. We'll get, to, my eyes. we'll get to that right now. What are we'll, we doing with this? Okay, listen. So let me. I, I'm looking in that okay, direction, three, so two, I can't. You can't, she can't touch me. Okay, there we go. Bang. Okay. Well, she looks scarily gorgeous. Does she? <laughs> She's not supposed to. Okay, why have you put, chosen this? Because this is your baby. Yeah, it is. It is. Um,. Uh, I've decided that on, decided. on the show, mm. I would like to discuss a, a a particular topic that possibly you haven't covered in your Facebook posts, but something that is uh, of great interest um, online at the moment. And at, and, at, and at the moment, one of the uh, topics that people are talking about is the relevance of Greek mythology today. Okay. So um, I've seen it, and I think, well, we've all seen elements of Greek mythology in many of the mythological stories that tell today. Well, you can see elements of Greek mythology within many of the films we see today, not just the ones that reenact a whole lot of that Fast stuff. Fast and Furious. <laughs> okay, well, which one would that one be? That's the one about Poseidon's premature ejaculation. <laughs> can I say ejaculation on this show? I can't say ejaculation on this show. Sorry for saying ejaculation on this show. But no, you know what I mean. Like you've got uh, many of these other uh, Marvel and uh, DC MU. I don't know what that means. Okay, so you know uh, D, um, DC Comics, um, the Superman, Batman, and so okay, forth. Okay, You got Marvel Comics, which, which I, I'm Iron aware Man that 4. such thing exists, but mm. I've never seen them. Yeah. Thor's an interesting guy, isn't it? 
I don't know. I am Thor, and next year I shall be five. <laughs> now, now, which which t- which British TV series did you pull that one from? Or is it just something 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 came? I've, All I've right, heard guys, I'm being accused of plagiarism. <laughs> it's been nice knowing you. I leave you in the capable hands of this terrible illuminator who has fi- who has uh, filled the background full of balls. Yachara. Greek mythology today. So we try to get back on track here. Greek mythology today. Uh, does it have any relevance? Who cares? Oh, come on. It must. Like, uh, Yes, it does, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Take this lady here, All Medusa. Right, let's, let's put it what on. do we know about Medusa? Turn. What is Medusa to you? Well, woman that turns you to stone if you look at her, right? Yeah. So, but, but cursed woman, and unfairly so. Okay. She pissed off one of the goddesses, right? Athena? You don't piss off goddesses. Yes. You don't. Whether it's in show business, whether it's in the music business, whether it's in parliament, you don't upset goddesses. Mm. This is a fact. Now, much maligned lady. Yeah. Because she's not a lady. She's a monster. Yeah. She's no longer a person. Mm. Why? Athena cursed her. Why yeah. did Athena curse her? She was a beautiful, live, lissom girl, according to mythology. But she and she was serving the temple of Athena, mm. so she was one of Athena's employees. And you know where I'm going with this. O H and S. Yeah, <laughs> there are safety issues here. There's work cover. The uh, the investigation still ongoing. The unfair dismissal claim. Wow. Yeah, yeah they fa- they failed at the mediation. But anyway, and then Poseidon likes the look of her. Poseidon mm. is a randy god, mm. and uh, Athena's uncle, right? Yeah, and violates violates Medusa in the temple. Now, instead of being protective of her handmaid, Mm -hmm. and I use that word epithelous, she punishes her for being violated Mm. by Poseidon Mm. by cursing her to have this form. And you think, well, you know, the today's mythology states that sisters are doing it for themselves and there's the sisterhood and the sisters are together and the men are repressive. Mm. But what you see here is class-based repression because the Olympians of either gender Mm. are banding together to reinforce their own hegemony and they are punishing the victim. And it is a woman who is punishing another woman for being raped. Why? Because it's happened on her property because somehow her property is therefore compromised. That is huge. See, a lot of the feminist literature which I've read presents her as a really strong, emancipated figure. Oh, you know, she can turn men to stone. Mm. But I see it completely different. Women have destroyed her. Women have dehumanised her. Right. And she's a victim and she should be pitied, not feared. Because imagine this. It's not your fault that when you look at people, they turn to stone. And you are denied basic communication and love. Mm. Because... The first, your natural reaction as a human being mm. is to look at another human being. Yeah, that's how you communicate. That's how you connect visually yeah. before anything else. But yeah. you can't. She can't. No, she can't. The minute that she looks at someone, that person gets turned to stone, and she can't control that. Yeah. It is not her. Yeah. It is this nature that she's been transformed into. Yeah. So myth as metamorphosis. She's no longer human. She's miserable. No, Perseus who kills her, in my opinion, is an absolute twat. First of all, all the other demigods out there do it for themselves. You know, Hercules is out there bumbling about and doing whatever he wants. Perseus constantly needs help. It's always <laughs> Athena's going to give him this. You know, um, Hermes is going to give him the Hermes. 
you know, which is uh, not a sexually transmitted disease. Or handbag. Um, it's going to give... Well, it is a homemade. <laughs> well, I'm going to digress now, but emphasis, tell you a story. I was uh, at a Greek deli once. Yeah. Uh, getting uh, things ready for, uh, I think it was uh, Christmas. Yeah. Just getting some ingredients to make a mm-hmm. nice Christopsomo. And there was a kid um, running loose and fell onto me. Mm. And uh, knocked over a spice rack, and this lady comes in, Hermay, Hermay, Hermay. And I'm th- what the hell does Hermay mean? And Yaya was there as well, and she picks him up. You know, Yaya, this like the, late, the, the mother's flustered and she's like trying to make excuses. The, the grandma just picks the kid up by the scruff of the yeah. just puts him down and cuts <laughs> And I said, Ermi, it's not Ermi, it's Hermay. Uh. Uh, the lady says, and yeah, Hermay. Hermay, the Greek god of handbags. So <laughs> I found that interesting story. Um, all sorts of interesting things happen to me when I'm, I'm not looking for trouble. Yeah, but it seems clearly. to find me in, in the way of collisions <laughs> and things. And uh, yeah, so Hermes is giving him the wind sandals. He's giving him the winged hat, mm-hmm. invisibility cloak, which is where J.K. Rowling got the idea from. Yeah. yeah? Mm-hmm. And that's how you said, what's the relevance of myths? Well, elements of myths get recycled yeah. and get... Infuse other myths, and I think the centaurs in the world of J.K. Rowling as well. It, it is, okay? yeah. And you know, the centaurs come from Greece, and mm. uh, we know that, for example, there were a lot of centaurs who were doctors and who tried to prevent um, people from getting sick. They were the centaurs for uh, disease control. <laughs> Shut up. And <laughs> so this me nodding, 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 thinking, oh, okay, I did not know there was a, a centaur that was actually a doctor in Greek mythology. And I'm there was, there actually what? were, there, there were, were, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure now, vaguely something about that. Perseus has to be guided every step of the way. Here's your wing sandals, here's your this, here's your special effects, and by the way, this is how you kill the Gorgon. Now, Perseus has got no fight with the Gorgon. No. But somehow the gods have made his grandfather ask for the Gorgon's head, not the grandfather, the suitor of his mother. Right. And the reason why is he wants to he wants Perseus to go off and do this impossible task so he can go and seduce his mother. And Perseus has got massive mother issues. They're huge. But then again, Perseus was created when Zeus fell upon his mother like a shower of gold in the tower. Um, that that right. was the inspiration of Goldfinger, by the way. <laughs> now Shower of gold. Okay. I'm sure I don't know what you mean, but the point no, is no, I'm just, just saying. Now, so he does that. Perseus chops off her head, and yeah. obviously, even when it is dead, that head turns people to stone. And then what happens? Even in death, mm. she's Athena's property, and her head eventually gets put where on Athena's breastplate to scare people, and so she can be fearsome in battle. Wow. Now. When you look at the way women are abused or mistreated, mm. or when you look at the power imbalances that mm. exist in the world, this is a very apt cautionary tale. So the Greek myths are highly psychological for me. Yeah. The Greek myths explain a lot about human nature, yes. and that's why I think they're perennially relevant. You take, for example, the myth about uh, Kronos mm-hmm. and uh, Uranus. Mm. And Uranus and Gaia mm-hmm. are the first primeval beings. Mm-hmm. And uh, Uranus is oppressing Gaia. Hmm. He's lying on top of her and she can't breathe. Hmm. And she needs some space. Hmm. This relationship needs space. He's suffocating. He's one of those kind of men. Hmm. So she schools her son, Cronus, to achieve liberation for the mother. How? 
by giving him a magical sickle mm -hmm. to chop off his testicles. Yeah. The very essence of his manhood. And Cronus does this. And according to one myth, the drops of blood that fall onto Gaia and fertilize her bring forth the Furies, the avenging goddesses that punish you when you do something wrong. Mm -hmm. Or some of that blood fell into the sea and created Aphrodite. Wow. Either way, this idea of a younger person having to kill their father or overthrow their father mm. in order to be emancipated, yeah. Yeah, but really is a tool of the matriarchy in doing so, is a really interesting one. Wow. Never thought of and it like we, that. And we remember, for example, that... And then the same thing gets repeated with Cronus. Cronus actually swallows his children because there's a prophecy that his children will overthrow him. Yes. So he swallows his children. Mm. And when you look at the way we conduct ourselves in our Greek brotherhoods, Oh. And the way these uh, octogenarian men yeah. <laughs> uh, swallow their youth because they are afraid of being removed from their presidential thrones, mm. you can see again the perennial relevance of the Greek myths. Yeah. And there is a prophecy that the Olympians will also be removed one day, which is why, um, what's his name, Zeus, no, swallowed Metis and kept her in his brain and absorbed her intelligence, out of which sprang Athena. Because if she had had a son, that son would have overthrown him. Wow. So this man is appropriating his partner's intelligence by absorbing her and keeping her cerebrally in the head. No. So that's very much a cerebral, intelligent relationship. Mm. All these things say something. If you go to the next pick, Let's go to the next goodbye pick. Medusa. Oh, that way. There okay, so that's Icarus. Now, we all know the story about Icarus. If you fly too close to the sun, your, your wings will melt, you'll fall in the sea. It's a yeah. cautionary tale about hubris. Mm -hmm. When you're too smart for your own good, you know, pride comes before a fall. But did you know that the school for training pilots in Greece is called Scholi Icarus? No. It's the Icarus school. Why the hell... <laughs> You would have as a mascot for your trainee pilots someone who did not know how to fly yeah. and <laughs> fell down and crashed is beyond me. It makes no sense. That's a good point. It's a that sad a, joke. That is a very good point. Now, <laughs> it beggars belief, and it probably explains why so many planes fall out of the sky in Greece. You know, there's a, there's a lot of airplane accidents in Greece, especially military ones, unfortunately. Well, if that's your mascot... Can you blame them? Probably not, no. Uh, but military, um, that's probably a different topic for another another day anyway, but uh, I, I've heard that with regards to uh, military aircraft, the Greeks end up sending their planes up uh, for real dogfights almost on a weekly Well, they do. They have basis. clashes. It's, yeah. it's one of those things that have to happen because unfortunately our neighbours are quite... Annoying, yeah, and don't respect international boundaries. No, definitely not. And so, and see, Icarus didn't have to deal with this. Icarus grew up in the labyrinth, yeah, with Daedalus, mm -hmm. and uh, Daedalus obviously created the wings, the magical wings, in order to get him out because it was the only way to escape. Mm. And uh, of course, uh, tragedy ensues because the kids—it's his first uh, first taste of freedom, mm -hmm. soaring through the air—is attracted to the sun. And you know the corollary, said it, of that story is uh, Phaeton, who was the son of the sun and who stole his dad's chariot. Yeah. Except he didn't know how to drive his chariot. So right. when you're 15, 
and you possibly take your dad's car and you possibly <laughs> take it for a spin when he's not looking and you possibly then spend all night trying to park it back in the driveway the way he had it <laughs> because you know that he's parked it in a way because the specs are going to take it out. And then in the middle of doing that, you possibly nick the wall a bit. Maybe, possibly. Um, <laughs> I'm just, I've heard that this happens. Oh, you've heard. So Phaeton did exactly the same thing. And uh, the story is that when he did that and he lost control of the chariot, he was mm. uh, going uh, too low. So that the African countries, the reason why their people's complexion is black, according to myth, is because Phaeton went there and scorched everything. Right. And in the end, uh, Zeus said to uh, Helios, you know what? Your boy's a menace and just threw a thunderbolt at him and killed him. Just like that. Because that is how you deal with traffic accidents and reckless drivers <laughs> in ancient Greece. Again, why is mythology important? That is why mythology is important, Pete. I suppose we've only scratched the surface of it, right? Um, well, look, I mean, and the other thing is this. The way that we interpret our myths mm. is based on two things. One is the ancient writers, mm. where we find them. Um, people like Homer, yeah. people like Hesiod with his mm. works and days and uh, these mm. poems, especially Hesiod because the whole cosmogony is there. Yeah. And we only get very few versions of the myths. Mm. Now, the Byz Byzantines, who still had a lot of the ancient texts that have been lost, mm. refer in the encyclopedias, especially the one called the Suva, which is like a compilation of all known information mm -hmm. at that time, mm -hmm. refer to the other ancient writers who had different takes on, for example, the Trojan epic right. with different endings. You know, in really? some endings, Helen is the, it wasn't Helen's fault. In other ones, it was. Um, there are endings which have Odysseus settled in Epirus. There are ones where he settles in Thessaly. They're mm -hmm. all different plays on the myth. So these were constantly negotiated, reimagined in mm. order to tell a story. Yeah. And that's the, the dynamic thing about myths. They never lose their currency because they're about human beings and human nature. And you can twist them, you can change them, you can play with them. Mm. You can do whatever you want. Do you remember that show which was called, it was a movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou with uh, George Clooney? Yes. Yeah, well, that was based on the Odyssey. I really didn't know that. Uh, and they're trying to escape, and there's a bit where he, he actually throws a stake into the guy's eye, and that's like killing the Cyclops. Right. When they're caught by the Ku Klux Klan. So even modern movies yeah. are, to some extent, sometimes based on the myths. Mm. The great, uh, I think it was late 70s movie, The Warriors, mm -hmm. which is based on the March of the 10,000 of Xenophon. Wow. And that's actually I did not know that gang either. warfare, and they're trying to get from one part of, I think, New York to the other. Yeah. Um, based on the ancient myths. Yeah. So perennially relevant. And, of course, the West has appropriated their myths, and they keep, they keep them as the fine foundation of their own sagas, even though they've got their own myths. But, I mean, more people who are Australian uh, in, in background would know Zeus than they would the Celtic gods. True. Or maybe the Saxon gods, mm. uh, except for Thor and maybe Odin. Mm. You know? and, and that tells you something about the perennial attraction of these. Mm. And well, the thing that we know is that a lot of these myths originally come from Babylonia anyway. Some of the myths are great. For example, really, I, I, that sorry, that I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, that's another topic. We should go into okay, it one day. Okay, we should go into. Uh, uh, but leaving this topic aside, mm -hmm. let's just talk about Ambelos. All right, Ambelos was the lover of Dionysus. Yeah, uh, he gets killed, mm -hmm. and uh, from the blood that he spilled comes the grapevine. Mm. Ambeli. Ambeli. But the whole the whole point of mythology is, was to actually uh, develop a uh, moral compass for um, the society, right? I don't think so. No, I really don't think so. You don't think so. I think it was a way of discussing human nature and the way it happens because a lot of these people are amoral. 
You look at Odysseus. Yeah. When we talk about Odysseus, yeah. What's prized about Odysseus is how crafty he is, mm. how he's able to talk his way out of any situation, mm. how he's able to survive. Yeah. And he lies a lot. Yeah. He cheats a lot. Yeah. He makes he, he allows his companions his companions to die. Yes. And even though Penelope, his wife, is sitting there patiently waiting all these years and uh, weaving the tapestry and then pulling mm. it apart because the suitors want her and all yeah, these yeah. things, um, he's off having a lot of fun with Circe and with Calypso. Right. And for seven of those ten years that he's wandering, he's actually with the nymph in mm. the cave having a lot of fun. Mm. And in the end, she says to him, well, stay with me and I'll make you immortal. He doesn't want her, a woman, to confer immortality to him because then the power imbalance is different. Right. And he chooses to leave. Again, that psychological element. He will not accept immortality as a gift from a woman because then it goes to that ancient Greek concept of obligation. Right. But that, but but it doesn't that also. So I don't I don't see it as a as a moral issue. Moral, moral issue. You, you know, look at Hera. Hera's jealous, and she can and she inflicts a lot of pain. Yeah. On on the uh, Zeus's victims, and I call them victims because Zeus rapes women. Yeah. And men. Mm. Not exactly the moral compass we're looking for. But I suppose it's more about the fact that the world is a, is chaotic, mm-hmm. and the world is full of forces we can't control. And how we deal with that. How we deal with it, yeah. right? It's not a doctrinal book. It's not like the Bible no, that says, no, thou no. shalt not and kill, thou shalt right. not and do that, And that's not what I was I actually... I mean, there's, ref- great, um, there's, great, there's a great... That's, what there. I was, that's not what yeah. I was referring to with regards to it being a, a, a moral thing. But I, I did mean that when you actually look at these stories and you look at the implications and so forth and you have these discussions about these chaotic yeah. forces in the world, then, uh, then that... Then from that, you take the learnings that help develop a moral... Um possibly and possibly not. <laughs> They're ambiguous. There's the great one where they cheat the gods um, because, you know, the gods want sacrifices, yeah. as all gods do, and politicians. Mm. And uh, they, they, they kill... The, the bull, you know, they're, they're offering bulls or cows or things. Yeah, yeah. It's called a hecatomb. They kill a hundred bulls. And uh, what they do, because they want the meat. And Greeks love, ancient Greeks love a barbecue. That's why <laughs> modern Greeks in Australia love a barbecue. Absolutely love burning meat. Yeah. Oh, we came to Australia and we re-found our passion no, no, but for we the did. ancient we did. We uh, did. rituals. Every time I light the barbie, I say a prayer to Zeus. Yes. And what they do is they got all of the uh, the fatty bits, which they they especially believed were prized and mm-hmm. put them under a heap of bones and then they got the skins okay. of the bull and then they hid all the choice meats under that so zoo and they said which one do you want and zoo says oh, i want that with the fat and this and that and that's the one i'm going to accept and he looks at it and it's the fat but underneath is all the bones which is useless so men always get the best portion so the men are outwitting the gods it's brilliant no it's not this idea of the gods must be propitiated it's yes, we can propitiate the gods, but being Greeks, we can also fool the gods <laughs> and get our way. It's a very, very interesting way of looking at the world. Almost seems like um, our, uh, our propensity to actually avoid paying taxes. Look, um, <laughs> I, I make no comment about taxes. I wasn't here. The only reason why I mentioned that is that when you were talking about the whole hiding and you're remembering your tax return. uh, No, uh, thank uh, thankfully no, but thanks for reminding me. Uh, I was remembering uh, our mutual friend John Vithorkas, and he he did a commerce. I know not of such a man. (laughs) We did he did a commerce degree at at Melbourne, and he started and he did a whole lot of uh, he did a subject on um, a course on. 
tax law. And he said that when you're actually doing all these subjects, just it's basically case, um, like case studies. <laughs> he said the number of cases uh, that had a Greek name versus the ATR, Greek name versus the ATR was phenomenal. Like it, it, it was, it was amazing how many of these cases that led to uh, plugging holes within tax law. Well, if were, one were considers to a, to a Greek, if one considers <laughs> that the ATO has godlike status because they have far-reaching powers, mm-hmm. they can pierce a lot of corporate veils, do a lot of things, they have vast exploratory even investigative powers. They're like a god. They are. So the Greeks who are challenging the god yes. are doing what their forefathers did before That's them. exactly what uh, – that, that's the reason why it came to me. And that's, uh, so, yeah, thank you for explaining that. Anyway, uh, moving on, moving on uh, to something probably a little more um, – well, uh, a little more solemn. So this uh, month uh, we uh, commemorated the uh, Greek genocide uh, on the 19th of May. Uh, what are we seeing here, Dean? Okay, so the Greek Orthodox community of Melbourne and Victoria mm-hmm. uh, decided to honour the victims of the genocide mm-hmm. by bathing their building with a red light, mm-hmm. which uh, commemorates the blood of the slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Greeks who died in Asia Minor and Eastern Thrace yeah. during that horrible period between 1914 to 1923. Yeah, And uh, well done, I say. It's yeah. very important that the peak uh, body in our community here in Melbourne mm. takes a, stand, a public stand and honours the memory of these people because up until now, as you know, and we talk about this often, mm-hmm. behind the scenes, um, these commemorations have basically been limited to the Ponding, Pondian communities yes. of Melbourne. Mm. And uh, everyone else sort of says, yeah, it's sad, but they don't really care. They don't invest in it. It doesn't seem to move them, Yeah, which I've always found fascinating because mm. if you talk to the Assyrians and the Armenians mm. who also are communities that were victims of the genocide during Ottoman times especially, Yeah, they don't make the differentiations that we do. Mm. You know, we have three different days to commemorate the genocide. We yeah. have one for Eastern Thrace, yeah. which I think is in April. April 6th. Yeah. April 6th. Mm. One for the Pondians up on the Black Sea region, which mm. is the 19th of May, yep. which is why they did this. Yep. And uh, one for the uh, Greeks of Asia Minor, which is weird because Pondos is in Asia Minor. But that's that one's in September and commemorates the catastrophe in Zmidni and the burning. Yes. And aren't all these people Greeks? Yes. Um, there are greater differentiations linguistically, culturally, and even religiously within the Armenian and the Assyrian communities. But they refer right. to this thing as an ethnic thing because if it happens to one of their tribe, it happens to all of them. All of them. We don't have that. No. We're a funny bunch of people who seem to think that our common ancestors are... Alexander the Great, Pericles and Kulokotroni. Yeah. But apart from that, each to his own village. Mm. And if it didn't happen in my village, I really don't give a stuff. Which is why up until recently you see hardly anyone at the commemorations that the Pondian communities organise for these kind of things. Yeah. Um, lately that's changing. It I is. think there's a lot more uh, sensitivity about the issue and mm. I think that's great. Mm. And I think that's also got to do with the moves that have been made within mm. the community in the past 20 years, A to get the Assyrian and the Armenian community involved Absolutely. and present it as a mm. Christian genocide because mm. that's what it was. That's exactly what it was. And also um, in terms of renaming it and calling it a Greek genocide yeah. rather than a specifically Pondian. Yeah. Because you do that and then automatically you're typecasting the thing. Correct. You're removing the Pondians from the body of Greeks. Yes. People who are not Pondian will not sympathise mm. with it. Mm. It becomes isolated. It comes caught, compartmentalised and outside mm. of the narrative. 
and that's not what we want. No, and um, but it has also been a hugely debated within our within our community, right? And and when I say our community, uh, I'm saying more so the the Pontian community, and uh, there has been huge opposition uh, by many sectors within our community to actually change them from Pontian genocide to Greek genocide. I, I'm not aware of that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, it's uh, it was, it, and it's it's got a couple of um, facets to war, a couple of link um, gladius it, you know, branches to that. One is um, a push by uh, certain academics uh, saying that if you call it a Greek genocide, then you uh, muddy the waters because uh, Greece uh, did uh, occupy parts of uh, uh, Asia Minor during uh, the end of the First World War, and uh, and then and and then you're going then you give the perpetrators the excuse of saying, well, you know, they were just victims of war, whereas if you just focus on the region of Bondos, then uh, the, the country, Greece, or the army of Greece, isn't is brought this, into the equation Is this an academic from Australia who's saying no, this? No, academic no, no, from no, Greece? no. An, an, an academic okay. from Greece. I'm not surprised because Greek academics don't know their tits from their asshole. <laughs> they don't. I'm sorry for the expletives, but it's true. <laughs> I wouldn't go that And far. I wanted to use the most broad Australian phrases I could because even as you say this, I'm thinking to myself, where did this guy get his degree? He's probably one of those Greeks that write books with 500 pages f- filled with statistics and not a footnote in sight. Because that's what a lot of Greek ab- academics <laughs> do, my children. <laughs> now, I'll address you on this point. Mm. First of all, it is true that the Greek army, when it entered Asia Minor and was trying to uh, neutralise the opposition to the occupation of Smyrna, mm. and remember, after the war... We were given by the Allies the zone of Zmirny to occupy and administer Correct. for yeah. five years, right. after which time there were going to be free and fair elections mm. and the people were going to decide who they wanted to stay with. All right? It was not an invasion as the West portrays it. What happened was that Kemal Ataturk's nationalist movement was mm. harassing the army, creating terrorism acts behind the scenes, mm. and the army made the decision, with permission from the Allies, to cross the zone into the Turkish territory in order to catch them and punish them. And then what Gemal expertly did was draw the Greek army into the interior further and further and further, extending yeah. the supply lines until the whole thing broke. Yeah, That is what he did. During that time, the Greek soldiers from Greece did uh, indulge in massacres because they carried out a scorched earth policy. Right. They were in unfamiliar territory. Most of them were for parts of Greece that were completely unfamiliar with Asia Minor, and they did terrible things. Mm to innocent women, children, and men. And we should actually... That cannot be denied. And I don't think that officially it is denied. No, no, no. That's got nothing to do with genocide. No, nothing. What the Greek army did was commit war crimes Mm. in the course of military operations, and the people who were involved in that should have been punished. Yes. 100%. Mm. And I've got no problem saying this, and I've written about it uh, in articles. Mm. We did do this, the Mm. Greek army. What the... Ottomans and the Kemalists did after that was completely different. The the definition of genocide, as uh, coined by international law, talks about the intentional removal of all or part of a population from a place. Now, the Greek army did not have its intention to remove Turks from an area. They just went mad and started killing people, Mm. okay, in the course of occupying and doing these things Mm. and moving on. Mm. The Turks had a plan. It was a long-existing plan. It took place over a decade yeah. to remove all of the Christians of the Ottoman Empire yeah. by deporting them, killing them, 
dispossessing mm. them of their goods, making mm. them die of hunger, taking them on forced marshes. It is a completely different thing. Yeah. And it is true. And here the academic is correct in saying that if we raise the genocide, the Turks raise that. Yeah. Well, we should not be afraid of that. Correct. And that is where I, I completely disagree. We should be able to say, yeah, but one thing is not the other. Yeah. And the other thing is this. Yes, we have the illuminated balls to admit that our army did uh, uh, indulge in war crimes. Why right. don't you have the illuminated balls to admit that what you did was genocide? Absolutely. Okay? It levels the playing field. We do not fear their responses because history is on our side. Mm. Secondly, if you speak to the uh, the Turkish academics, uh. and if you look at the debates that happened in 1918 in Turkish parliament yeah. about where the genocide took place, and right. I'm actually investigating this now and I'm reading the... Uh, the minutes of at the, the time that word yeah. didn't exist though, right? No, no, no. They were talking about massacres, and the Greek, yeah. the Greeks who were in Parliament were saying, "Look, this is what you guys did," and it was the Turks who were saying, "Yeah, but look at what you guys did to us in Pondos," and they were talking about manic massacres of innocent Turks in Pondos when during the time of the uh, Russian occupation. Op- Russian occupation, right? So whether or not that's true, if the academic is saying let's only focus on Pondos because we're blameless there. He's obviously not read the Turkish sources. Mm. And when you are going to debate with these people and when you're hoping to speak the truth and when you want to enter into dialogue with them, which most Greek historians do not, A, because they don't speak Turkish, B, because they have no contacts with Turkey, how are you going to convince the other people when you don't know where they're coming from? All right. He's speaking to the air, you're speaking to the converted, what are you doing? It's wrong. I'd be interested to see what the uh, Turkish sources basically say. And also the validity of them. I do have my suspicions. You, you have to you have to question the validity of all sources. I agree. I Not totally just agree. because, for example, one of our historians says something that's true. What's no. it backed up on? I've seen so many different spurious statistics and outrageous claims by Greek historians to do with the genocide that I think that they do more harm than good. There are a lot of exaggerations, but there are other people who are a lot more measured. Hmm. And the thing that we don't understand, this is where talking to the Turks is important, is that there are Turks who are on our side. True. They are, they are, there are people out there who say that, yes, we did these terrible things yeah, and we need to acknowledge them. Mm. So you enter into dialogue. You don't shy away from a discussion because you're afraid that the Turks are going to well, come up with another argument. It goes against everything to do with academia. When you're in academia, you want to be hence, challenged. Hence my uh, disconcertment when you, when you mention people that make claims of that nature. Yeah, no, no. It's, uh, that, it's, that, it's the that wrong was, argument. Uh, and the other thing which, which yeah. we should be doing, and I've had this, I had this problem here. I presented a lecture several years ago which was called Righteous Muslims. And it was about mm. Muslims within the Ottoman Empire that actually protected Armenians and Greeks yeah, and we actually during the a, genocide. We did a small segment on it, a couple of... Uh, uh, that, that was about 1821. This was about the genocide. Oh, I'm about. okay. I so I, I gave a lecture, and I could see a couple of people were not happy. Yeah. And one of them came to me after the lecture and said, I'm not happy. So why aren't you happy? Mm. Oh, no, you're making them out to be nice people. Mm. And then I thought, okay, if we're going to be genocide campaigners just so we can vilify the Turkish people and so that we can present them as evil and orientalise them in that way. Mm. Well, then, I personally am not about that. No. I'm about acknowledging the history, understanding why it happened so it doesn't happen again, coming to terms with it, and then moving on. And I can 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 honestly say that most of uh, people of, uh, of our generation that are involved within, I'm not going to talk about the Pontian community, uh, understand 
that, that as well. Uh, we have uh, read and heard many, many stories of Turks who risked their lives saving children. Uh, uh, authorities knocking on their door saying, no, no, where is this particular child? Is this child yours? Yes, they're, you know, they're mine. Or hiding well, We know families. also that there were high-ranking governors of cities and provinces who refused to follow the CUP, the community, the Committee of Union and Progress, which is the ruling party of Turkey, yeah. their command that they round up Greeks and uh, Syrians and Armenians. Mm. And these people were replaced, so they suffered with their careers for not doing this mm. because they were principled people, because uh, principle and morality knows no race. Yeah. It, it's not, it's not uh, what's the word, confined to one religion. Yeah. We share in the basic pool of humanity. Yeah. Okay, so these are things we should discuss. And again... It's a great thing to raise because if these people are protecting victims yeah. and you have these genocide dis- deniers, mm. if the genocide didn't happen, what were these righteous Muslims protecting these people from? It is, it is an argument it yeah, is. which strengthens our contention. And the other thing that no one's ever discussed is this. We know that 1914 they started removing Greeks from the uh, coast. Yes and taking them into the interior, deporting them, doing yes. these things, because there was this thing, we've got to get rid of them, they're a security risk. Yes. And we know it's a lot more complicated than what has been presented, mm. because the before the war happened, mm. the deportations began. Yes, before the war. And right? uh, we know, for example, that Venizelos got in touch with his counterparts, in because Venizelos was in power then, in the Ottoman Empire and said, you've got to stop this. Yeah. And they said, you give us a guarantee, you won't enter the war and you remain neutral yeah. and we'll stop the massacre. It was that cynical. Yeah. So when we Amazing. talk about Venizelos' problem with the king and how the king was a Germanophile, didn't want to enter into the war, yeah. and Venizelos did want to enter the war, yeah. we've got to look at Venizelos as an opportunistic politician mm. who would sway every way the wind went to get right. the best deal. Because in 1914, in order to stop the massacre from happening, he did undertake that Greece would remain neutral. Wow. Yeah. I, Whereas I, he's the ch- we, we present him as a champion of the Entente and of the these powers. It's yeah. a bit more complicated. Yeah. It always is, though, Dean, isn't it? And and even this idea that we've got to secure Asia Minor. Mm. Everyone says, we should never have gone there. These people needed to be protected. Yes. Because they were getting killed Absolutely. constantly. That's right. Throughout the war. And then afterwards, the aftermath. So... It's a complicated issue and it requires a lot of study and it requires a lot of dialogue and it requires sensitive handling. I am very heartened by the fact that the Armenian genocide was acknowledged and recognised by the American president, Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great step forward. A lot of people said to me, oh, he did that but he didn't recognise the Greek genocide. Why? And they were really upset, you know, because what about me? It isn't fair to quote uh, a famous poet. And I say this. Well, it's not official Greek government policy because the Treaty of Lausanne was signed in 23 mm. and that treaty stipulates whatever happened, happened, all bits are off, we're done now. Mm. And Greece has never raised this on an official level. You it's say not Greek that, policy. Thing. You say that there have been, they've been, they've been countless leaders, prime ministers of Greece that have turned around and have actually used the words, this is a national issue in ethnic orthema, right? Yeah. And now let's see how many times that's been raised with Turkey. And this is never. This is this is the obfuscation I can't stand because uh, <laughs> I sort of made made that point uh, somewhat on on Greek TV recently. But w- 
I know. I want to know what directives the Greek government's giving uh, their ambassadors, uh, their consul generals in these respective countries when it comes to an issue like this. Because people say, you know, I, I, the, the excuse I can't stand and I hear is that oh, we can't get involved in Australian uh, politics. Like, well, why are you here if it's not to advocate Greek national issues? Yes, but then the question is just because you have an idea as a Greek Australian born here what a Greek national issue is, that doesn't mean that you you represent Greece's interests. You represent a particular view of history and your understanding of your own identity. You don't represent Greece's interests as they are perceived by Greeks or by the Greek foreign ministry. These are two different things. Okay. And there's a little bit of cynicism which is involved in this. Um, we have to be careful. They've got a job to do. Right. Our interests are not exactly their interests. We're somewhere in between the two worlds. Uh, um, they call, then they call and it a national, a national well, well, issue. They, they, will call, they will call things by whatever name in order to get enough votes. Yeah. And that is the reason, really, the reason why we have three different dates to commemorate the genocide how of the we Greeks. Fix that, That's Dean. so that we can. Do you have get any ideas how, how we go about fixing that? Because uh, with regards to that issue, mm-hmm. I've been asked that question a number of times, and uh, I'm telling you now, I'm I'm always stumped. Uh, and admittedly, I'm stumped. Well, and, I look and, at and we I don't look even at it have this a way. Discussion I look at it, it this way. We've got to say one thing. We've got to acknowledge that what Greece does is Greece's business. Yeah, we're opposing the alienness. We're yeah. a completely different thing. Okay, I can agree with that. And. I had this discussion with members of the Macedonian community yes. when the Prespes agreement was happening. Yes. And I said to them this, do you have a backup plan? I mean, none of you agree with Prespes. Right. And the Greek government looks set to ratify this agreement. Yes. What are you going to do after that? Because yeah. you know that when you knock on anyone's official door here in Australia, they'll say, but your government has recognised this. Correct. Are we going now to oppose Greek government policy and come up with our own? Right. And how will that assist things? Do yes. we separate ourselves from Greece's interests in that way? Mm. Do we align ourselves with Greece unflinchingly? Mm. And if we don't, what are the repercussions? It's a hard question. We've had to deal with that as Epirotes all our lives because we were involved in the Northern Epirotes issue and campaigning for rights for That's Greeks right. in Northern Epirotes. Yes. And the Greek government's response was always, stop talking about this issue. You know, mm. um, Originally, they'd tell us things like, there are no Greeks in Northern Epirotes, and if they are... They're having How a great they time. Say that, Dean. Because they don't want to deal with the problem and they don't want amateurs like us talking about the problem. Amateurs. Because between us and uh, our groups, there are people who are logical, there are people who are cynical, yeah. there are people who are diehard fanatic, mm. and uh, sometimes that does more harm than good. Sometimes it does more good than harm, though. Well, 1821 is On the Macedonian front, I remember a certain consul general telling us in 2007, go and organise a demonstration. Oh, he, there was a gave, secret he, meeting. He gave a said, direction. I think you guys should you, you organise a demonstration. Okay. And I said, okay, just to clarify, you want us to go and organise a demonstration. He yeah. turned to me, screamed, goes, don't you dare put words in my mouth. I never said that. I can't be involved in anything you're doing. And I said, you know what, you're a joke. I'm going home. <laughs> then, some years later, wow. a, con- a, a specific consul general in Melbourne held a meeting where she was trying to stop us from having a demonstration about Macedonia. And this person said to us, if you promise not to have a demonstration, I will organise for the Louvre in Paris to send those sections of the Parthenon marbles that they hold, because they hold a little bit of them, to Australia on an exhibition. What? She's bargaining with our community on an ethnic issue. And all of the 
elderly lads in the room because she was a lady and they quite liked her, began to salivate and think this is great until I said to her, this is great, but aren't relations between France, who holds the marbles, and Australia, who's going to exhibit them, handled by the respective foreign uh, ministries and have got absolutely nothing to do with you? Mm. And she gave me a Medusa look (laughs) and all the other men gave me a Medusa look. Like, how dare you disrespect the consul general? And, of course, none of this ever happened because it was complete rot. Of course it was. We are that easily We are that easily led astray. The dangling of the keys. Uh, and it makes no sense. And it, if you think about things clearly, you can see where our good intentions are sometimes cynically exploited. On the other hand, sometimes the way that we go about things creates more harm than good. And my question is, do we devote our resources to memory or proper campaigning? I look at the Armenians... Ever since the Armenian genocide took place, yeah. Armenians did not really have a country. There was a small homeland called Armenia that was attached to the Soviet Union. Yes. Diaspora and the Armenians living abroad, hmm. they didn't have access to that country. They couldn't go there. Yes. They had no communication with their relatives. Okay. They were on their own. Hmm. Had no country. There was no foreign ministry to defer to. There were no resources to use. On their own, they maintained their anger and their rage. Hmm. They formed a group that actually went around a terrorist group assassinating perpetrators of the genocide in Germany and in various yes. other parts of the world, yes, yes, and all yes, these things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They That's did right. this, yeah. and they never stopped remembering this event. And wherever they went, they made their national identity synonymous with the genocide. Hmm. That is why they got results, yeah. because it affected them. It became yeah. part of their national narrative to the extent where they were all motivated to do this. Yeah. We're not like that. There have been studies done by, especially a recent one by a Swedish guy, where he talks about the fact that in Greece, especially Asia Minor, first-generation Asia Minor refugees, when they settled, they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to raise it as an yes, issue with the government. This is very true. Because they, it, they felt that that would uh, hinder their assimilation. Yeah. And also it would cause them to be considered the other by the rest of the Greeks. Yes. They wanted to forget. Yeah. It was only later that it became an issue. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather, my grandparents are prime examples of that. My, now, my, in, father's, my father's parents. In Greece, especially the Pondic vote, is exploited. And that is why you have a separate one for the Pondian genocide. You want to make the Pondians feel important. You want to go up there and talk about Pondian genocide, not Greek genocide, so that the Pondians can vote for you. Mm. And they do, because that's how it works in Greece. That is how easily and cynically you can exploit, exploit vo- votes. And it placates you and you hear the word Pondian and you're Pondian. So you focus on your specific suffering of your own people in your particular region, forgetting that it happened everywhere. Well, certainly that might be the case for certain politicians and that would exploit it. But that point, no, I don't think that was the main reason why it was, it was first termed that way. I think it was. I think it was because uh, predominantly the, um, the, the Pontian people actually ran with, uh, ran with the idea. That why did they run with the idea? Because you know, the, the, because the studies of genocide actually focus on that part of the world. I don't think that's true, though. You have the Institute of Genocide Studies, Asia Minor Genocide Studies in Athens, okay, which focuses on Mikrasia. Right, but w- when was that you have You have the various accounts by literary greats, uh, for example, Ilias Venezis, George Seferis, um, talking about these things people were all aware that it happened in other parts of the world as well as did the West you know Ernest Hemingway was in Eastern Thrace reporting on the refugees being deported true 
So people knew. It's just everyone focuses because of the way our national consciousness works on their own khuryo, oblivious or not caring about the sufferings of others. But if you do that, you're not able to put the whole thing into context. No. Because the, the uh, Turks did not make any differentiation no. whatsoever between Pondians, no. Asia Minor, Eastern Thrace. Absolutely Trace. not. No. You're all Greeks, you're yeah. all going. I don't think they've even differentiated us from the from the, our other Christian brothers and sisters. Well, they did. Matters. This is why I think that the term Christian genocide is useful, but it also has problems. I know. Because it implies we a sense... We th- 13 years ago, 14, yeah, we exploded. It implies a sense of brotherhood between Christian peoples that didn't exist. And we know that especially, well, we didn't have much contact with the Assyrians because there weren't many Greeks in the eastern part of the Ottoman Empire. There were a few, but not mm. that many. But we had a very antagonistic relationship with the Armenians. It was a very competitive relationship. We were both vying against each other for power and privilege that was conferred to us by the Ottomans. And the mm. Ottomans loved dividing and ruling. Yeah, And I'll say this. When the Armenians were being deported, the Greeks did not... I mean, Greeks did try and help them. Mm. The Greeks did not protest. The Greeks did not go out in the street to stop this preventing from happening. They didn't. Not all Greeks, I would imagine. No, the vast majority of Greeks stayed in their homes and said, thank God it's not happening to us. (sighs) That's why most people do that. We had this... Thank you. In Trapezunda, the the British consul records the fact that Greeks were going out in the streets, some Greeks, telling the Turks where Armenians were being hid. Now, obviously, that's something we don't like to talk about because that tarnishes our uh, image as innocent victims, as noble people and brothers. Yeah, But they did this, and you can understand why. And I'm sure it was the same with the Armenians hmm. and everybody else because, as you say, that is human nature. So our view of what happened has to be nuanced. Hmm. It has to be not tarnished by hatred, and also, when we're looking at these events mm. and when we're commemorating them, what exactly do we want to do? Yeah, That's a very important thing. It is a very important thing. Are we thing. doing it for the sake of just taking a photograph with a couple of banners yeah. and showing that we're doing something? Yeah. Are we doing it because we want to use that to really raise awareness, even though hardly anyone turns up? Yeah. What are we doing? I was at part of this year's genocide commemorations, the mm. whole community, mm because uh, it's a very moving event for me. My grandfather was a genocide survivor. Right. And, uh, but I always look at the optics and say, when we do something, who are we doing it for? What are we trying to achieve? Well, Melbourne's a very different place to, let's say, like Sydney. They had a very different experience in Sydney this year with regards to genocide well, commemoration. Each, each community has its own dynamic. Mm. Each community has its own political views, and mm. each community knows what they want out of what they're doing. Yes. And uh, I saw, I was very impressed by what happened up in Sydney. Yeah. And I applaud our Sydney brothers for what they're doing. Yeah. And of course they have the imprimatur of Archbishop Makarios. Yes. Who also made a uh, statement about the Pondian genocide. And uh, I think that's the first time an Australian hierarch officially positioned himself on the issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. It's also the first time I think an Australian hierarch attended a commemoration ceremony. I'm, I, I don't have any facts about that, so I don't know. If that's the case, well, power to him. Well done. Yeah. Now, have we said enough about the genocide? Well, you know what? The Can f- I say my genocide joke? Oh, 
there's no genocide. You can't see a genocide joke. Guys, forgive me. I'm going to try and say a genocide joke. Oh, God. Because... I might actually switch cameras just... Can't, to, you, can't you just... I think we can joke about everything. <laughs> no, 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 no. You put your camera back on. I want people to see your reaction to the genocide <laughs> oh, joke. Gee. Okay. Okay, yeah. Why so, not? Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan is at an international conference. And this international conference is about um, brutality in war and intolerance... Uh, against ethnic communities and whatever. So he's there, you know. And there's a break in the proceedings. He's like, oh, you know, I'm dying to go have a drink. So he walks into a bar. Yeah. And I should mention that this, for the purpose of this uh, joke, this convention is being held in Dublin in Ireland. <laughs> and he's dying to get a drink. And I don't know if it's going to be Guinness. I, I mean, he's a devout Muslim. He wouldn't be drinking that. He's trying no. to get a, a soda or something. Mm. And there's this beautiful girl sitting at the bar. Mm. And he's entranced by this girl mm. in a non-sexual way. Yes. Because he's a devout Muslim and a married man. Yeah. And he says, well, I'd like to speak to this girl and, and see what her story is. And he notices that she's wearing a name tag, as all delegates of these conferences do. Mm-hmm. I know in the Greek conferences in Greece, they take much pride in giving you fancy name tags and all these things. Of course, I've got many, um, and, many and, myself you know, at home. You, you gauge by your, your importance by how big your name tag is <laughs> and how many qualifications <laughs> are underneath. So he goes up and he's peering at the name tag, very, uh, what do you call it? Uh, very circumspectly, so she doesn't believe that he's uh, looking at her cleavage. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to spell it out. Jen or side? And she says, so now you recognize me, so you do. <laughs> and that's the joke, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> How we can affect recognition of the genocide. In two easy steps, using not many props. Oh, God. Too much? Not enough? Oh, I don't know. I'll <laughs> leave it to you guys. Love to see the comments once this goes up. Man. I think we should reenact this. I was going to be the girl and you're going to be Erdogan, but somehow it failed during rehearsals. I hadn't shaved my legs. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, let me just, uh, you know what? The, the, let's just move on. Okay. Oops, oops, oops. No, 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 that's all right. Let's go to the one after that, Pete. The one after that. The one after this? Yeah. All right, I haven't switched screens yet, but let's uh, let me zoom in on this a bit. Okay, so this is uh, the Greek Center, Yep, which is uh, the uh, landmark Greek building in the heart of Melbourne CBD. Yep. And if you have a look at these windows and things that you have here on, the, uh, on this remarkable edifice, mm-hmm. viewed from a certain direction, mm. and you've got to get up a little bit further out when you're there, yeah. you see the outline of the Discobolus. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you have to get you have to angle hard. yourself. It is very hard to see. Well, it's hard because the way that they've uh, destroyed the city by all these high rises that block out the sun and block out vistas, yeah. you can't see anything anymore. The city's become a very cold, windswept, characterless industrial wasteland, <laughs> and and this provides warmth and Hellenism, and and you see this discobolus as this figure which you know is poised and taunt. And, and grabbing this uh, discus and about to throw it and propel it into the future. And I think it's a metaphor for the way we view ourselves, you know, grounded in our past, right? youthful, mm. ready for action, ready to really go forth. Okay. Yeah. And slip on a banana peel and well, come fifth. Look, but beside the point, <laughs> look, that's what it is. And I, Okay, I can't, but I think I can see it, right? This is the you, discus. You have to trust me that it's there. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, but but it is. And let's try to actually get it um, some sort of outline for people who are mm-hmm. seeing cause, because it's very hard for them. To okay, so see up this. the top they're holding the discus. The discus is here. Yeah, and then they're that's crowd- the arm. That's the arm, and then there's the back, which is being arched. Yeah, arched. And then there's the legs. And there's the legs are here, right? So he's about to... He's, he's about, about to, to hurl this discus yeah. in the direction of Parliament House, hoping to, <laughs> hoping to fact, hit some... That's yeah, true. That's Parliament true. House it's oriented that way. That way. <laughs> so he's hoping to catch them as they're leaving the building. Now, let's go back to the one before this. All because right. for us, youthfulness, um, connected to our past, all these things. There you go. In case you didn't know what this, what the, the discobolus looked like, this is. This and is but it hasn't all been, it, it hasn't always been used for good, and we know that the discobolus was a famous ancient Greek statue, which was highly prized, there and the is. Romans made copies of it, and they loved it. And then in uh, 1938, Leni Riefenstahl, who was uh, Hitler's filmmaker, ah, uh, the great propagandist, great propagandist. Uh, created this film Olympia based on her footage of the 1936 Berlin Games right and that starts with all of these uh, statues classical statues mm-hmm. and then there's uh, a statue of the a, a picture of the statue of the Discobolus yeah and then they pour oil all over it and then the mist descends and then a man emerges in the same pose as the Discobolus this dude and then he throws that discus and the inference is clear Nazi Germany has appropriated the uh, legacy of ancient Greece. Not only that Arianism, that pureness, the classicism, the whiteness of the statues, because them, like all of the other Western uh, people, believed that the statues were white when they weren't. We used to paint them in gaudy colours. Yes. Like the Assyrians and the Babylonians yeah, yeah. did. And we've lost our appreciation of that because the colours have faded, but a few bits survive. Yeah. So there's that, and there's that, that idea that the, you know, the Aryan, that the Nazis, lean, mean, fighting machine. Yeah. And they've basically taken what we looked at in the ancient times as cultivating mind, body and soul yeah. and perverting it for their own ends. And Hitler was obsessed with this statue. Oh. And Hitler loved this statue so much that he actually arranged to purchase it from the Italians, one copy of it, which was unearthed in the 1700s, a Roman copy. Right. And uh, he brought it to Berlin. He originally, Mussolini's son-in-law, Gagliazzo Ciano, who was a foreign minister, didn't want to sell it to him. But over his objections, in order to please Hitler, Mussolini sent it to him. And uh, it was installed with uh, much fanfare in Munich, a city which we've both visited and love. Um, That burger, Braukeller, and the beer (laughs) is fantastic. Love Munich. Um, And uh, Hitler told people, you need to come and see this because this is perfection of the human form and this is what we're all about. Okay. So you see how... Symbols become appropriated and perverted to suit other ends. And that's what happened with him. And uh, we know that uh, in the end, uh, I think in 1949, it was returned to Italy. Actually, I think it was 47. Because the idea is is that you've taken this beautiful statue and you've done terrible things. You're using that as a uh, symbol of racial stereotyping. And, of course, we know what happened to people who didn't fit yeah. the stereotype. Yeah. No, it wasn't just the Jews. There were the Roma, the Gypsies, the Sinti, yeah. these people. Yeah. Uh, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. How many people who were declared mentally incompetent were killed? And uh, you know, it was a terrible time. Mm. It's very easy to make distinctions between people. And yeah. Hitler used something that was completely innocent yeah. in order to do that. Yeah. 
wow. as a symbol of what he was doing, the new Germany, you know. Fest der Völker. Olympia is the, uh, even the word Olympia, yeah? Yeah. Olympia and the Olympic Games and the connotations of Olympus. Mm. No, they, they are godlike people. They, they, these Nazis are removed from, you know, everyday mortality. They, they sit upon their Olympus and adjudicate and judge and they're born to rule. Yes. It's scary. It is. It what is. you do with symbols and the way that you employ your propaganda yeah. can have unexpected uh, results. And the fact that I actually enjoy and find it fascinating that you have the ancient statue, which the ancients prized. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it appears in literature time and time again. Lucian of Samosata, the famous Greco-Assyrian writer, talks about it talks about going to someone's house and saying, oh, is that the Discobolus? No, no, that's another statue. It's not as good as the Discobolus. The Discobolus is perfection. No, back then. (laughs) And then you have this, then it was lost and found in the 17th century and prized. And I think one of the Roman cardinals had it in his house for a while. And as Roman cardinals do, you know, they admire the male uh, classical Greek (laughs) form as much as anyone else does. And uh, don't know why I found that funny. Oh, I don't either. <laughs> and um, it ends up being a uh, an apologist for the Hitler regime. Wow. And then that's on the, the building, the, the edifice of the Greek community, meaning something completely different and innocent again. And I think I love the fact that the symbolism has gone full circle, that it's gone from the horrible darkness of Hitler, this sense of superiority and of exclusion, back to the youthful optimism. Mm and uh, neutrality, uh, and uh, just used as, as a symbol of dynamism. Mm. The way it was. Initially. The way it was yeah. by, by the modern Greeks. Yeah, I think that's heartwarming, and I think that we can restore a lot of our symbols that way, just by a proper prosengus, if you like, a proper approach. Well, apart from the Germans, did anyone else actually take that level of symbolism on board and pervert it? Well... Let's let's take out the word pervert for the moment, and I can tell you that in the 1920s, the Discobolus was on the US postage stamp. Oh, wow. It was a prized figure because, I mean, the Anglo-Saxons invest a lot of time in athletics mm-hmm. and this idea that sport is good. I don't know why, boys and girls. I can't understand the purpose of sport. That's just <laughs> me. I don't believe that sport is uplifting. I don't believe that sport teaches you anything useful about mankind. The ancient Greeks certainly didn't have a conception of sport that they do, you know. Remember that uh, I think it was the Byzantines uh, did that, didn't they? Byzantines didn't they love their sport and their teams? Byzantines, and you know what they loved? They loved stuff like polo, yeah, uh, yeah. which was called Tsitsakion or Tsikanion, something like that. It was called. They loved polo, which was I find weird. Yeah. Can you imagine the Prince Charles wearing Byzantine gear with a crown with the pearls coming down, you know, on his horse playing polo in Constantinople? Yeah, I can. I can actually. They loved horse races and chariot races. Yes. They loved them. They loved mm. betting on the horses. But then again with Greeks, and you see this with soccer mm. in Greece, mm. it's political. It is. So that... And that was back then too. You started off with the four teams, the reds, the greens, the blues, and the whites. Yeah. And then it was just the greens and the blues. Yeah. And they ended up being political factions. Yeah. So that... So much so that even emperors were... Were belonged. dethroned and uh, all sorts of yeah. things happening and riots and whatever because yeah. depending on which faction... And factions could elevate emperors. Yeah. So in Greek, the sporting is the political. Yeah. Here, no. Here, they it's 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 beyond politics. It, it it's something which, you know, uh, belongs to Olympus. Mm. You know, we elevate our footballers. 
mostly our footballers here in Melbourne. Mm. You know, they we, we make excuses for their bad conduct. Yes. Their poor judgment choices. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. They are looked after, they are cosseted, you know, they are given second chances when well, no we also we also want special treatment they got in Brisbane during the COVID the pin, the, pin, the peak of the COVID crisis we had here in Melbourne. Well, they they are the chief practitioners of our religion. And and so they must. Now, it's amazing how we always have to replace the Greeks, with something. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, mm. they did believe that people who won in the games of uh, whatever the Delphic Games, the Olympic Games, or a number of games, the, yeah. is, the Isthmian Games. Isthmian. I am an island. I am an isthmus. Yeah, <laughs> that they brought glory to their own people. Yeah, yeah. they come back. The old faded statues were. But apart from that, really, apart from imparting glory upon your your tribe and your people, the main motivation for you is for you to win and for you to get personal glory. Yes, that was it. Mm. And. Uh, it was just glory because you didn't get sponsorship. Yeah, there was none of this. Uh, we're going to put you up in a nice apartment, get and give you uh, yeah. advertising deals, yeah. and then you can advertise superannuation later on on national television. <laughs> you got a laurel wreath. There was an inscription. You may get yeah. a statue back home, and that's it. You're done. But, but but now we contract that out. We want the glory, but we don't want to do the work for us. So we contract that out to players, football players, right? And then when they win, we win. But we don't have to do any of the work for it, except for maybe buy a ticket or yell and scream at the TV, right? Well, there is that. And there's also this assumption that somehow being good at sport creates character, which is a very Victorian thing. I think it was Nelson said that the battle was won, of Trafalgar was won on the playing fields of Eton. Is that what he said? Yeah. And then there was that uh, story, that, that famous poem about people fighting for the, the empire and saying, play up, play up and play the game. So it shifts between playing rugby at Eton and fighting the Zulus or some other defenseless yeah. tribe of, of pygmies in Africa yeah. and presenting that as a triumph. <laughs> but I think that's alien to the Greek way because Greeks did believe in the harmony between body and soul. But then again, and I remember this as a kid because I, full disclosure here, I was crap at sport and I still am. <laughs> so was I. And I remember all these people feeling really, really fanatic about winning a soccer match or winning a footy match. Yeah. And I'd be sitting there thinking to myself, because I was never picked for the team. No. Yeah. And with good reason. <laughs> All right. Like the time I actually was really proud about the fact that I caught the soccer ball. Not knowing <laughs> that you're not supposed to do that. You weren't goalie. <laughs> no, I wasn't goalie. I just, the, the, the ball was coming at me and I caught it and I thought, wow, what a catch. Yeah. And uh, I loved you for that. <laughs> hil- hilarity ensued. But remember asking to myself, why are these people running around aimlessly trying to get a ball in the net or through these ticks? And what is this achieving? Mm. Why? Mm. So my my idea of sport is getting them all around the or in a circle, saying, "Okay, mm-hmm. um, you've just put this ball, ball in the net, or you've just kicked it through the big sticks. How does that make you feel? And what do you think you've achieved?" And we can all have a little discussion about that, and each person can say what they want to say. And if I survive and I don't get thumped, maybe we can come to some conclusions. <laughs> yeah, zap them of all their fun. What I used to like take to take that away from them. I what went would to you have, a, what would you have them do instead? Well, I'll Re- tell you this: I went to a school that idolised footballers and it was actually a training ground for they would recruit good people and then these people would end up in the AFL yeah and I went to school with a lot of footballers Mm. what I like to do in year 11 not so much in year 12 but in year 11 was when they were out playing and they were obsessed with playing whatever at lunchtime yeah I would go forth among them and steal the ball and run away with it so I would have all these seven foot Viking giants and descendants of the Varangian guard after me, 
uh, and catching me after a very short amount of time because I had no stamina, <laughs> pummeling me to death, um, elbows, why, knees. Why would you do that to yourself? Toes, because I wanted to make a visual protest against too much emphasis on football right. and the fact that these people had a lot of attention from their teachers, a lot of extra tutoring, which we weren't given the benefit of, of course because not. they were going to enter the AFL. Yes. And this would happen every lunchtime, and every lunchtime I would get beaten to a bloody pulp, and then mm. I would retrieve it with the ball, and then I'd do it again. Did and it change anything, though, Dean? It did, because eventually they got to expect it. And the days that I didn't do it because I was, you know, at home nursing my wounds or doing something else, they felt sad. And they would say, where is that bastard? <laughs> We're looking for someone to punch. <laughs> oh, God. And I did this all year. Mm. And in the end, some of those people came became some of my closest and greatest friends. Are you serious? Yeah. That's a nice story. I see no relevance to this story whatsoever. Which is a nice story to end it on because okay. we went from, you know, Discobolus being a symbol for Nazi Aryanism and finishing off on with you stealing ball, footballs and becoming good friends with footballers. And that's the thing. We started with the illuminated ball behind us <laughs> and we're finishing with other balls. Let's have a look Either the way, ball. there we go. There we go. We, we characterise today's session, if we were to give the episode a name, Balls. <laughs> it's the balls. It's a complete like. balls up. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. This is all changing, mind you. It's just like this for this episode. Oh, and the light's just gone out. And I think we should too. <laughs> yeah, it's not the only light that's gone out. <laughs> all right, Dean. Until next time. No outro again, because, you know, that's just the thing now. That's how it's just going to be. No yeah. thrills, no outro. No. Kind of all. like uh, no no name uh, no name brand uh, lollies <laughs> back in the day. I'm showing my age here. Yeah. Okay, well, au revoir. Au revoir. Au yes. That's, oh, and that's what you use. German. Turn the show on. You've got, you can, can you say it in like something a little more friendly? Sheretias. <laughs> Sheretias. <laughs>